invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. And keep in mind what this chapter is all about. The writer has been emphasizing the importance of faith. He has been illustrating through the lives of Old Testament saints the reality of faith, the critical importance of faith. We saw in verse 3 that faith is the means by which we make sense of the world as having been created by God. The writer so far has singled out two individuals. We consider that a third today, namely Noah. But whereas Abel illustrates for us the faith that worships God and Enoch, the faith that walks with God, Noah illustrates for us the faith that brings one into a saving relationship with God. Like Enoch, Noah lived during the era when God saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, according to Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. And yet in contrast to the wicked, ungodly world of his day, Noah exercised faith in God. He believed the warning of God concerning coming judgment upon the world, the judgment of the flood that was to come. We read this morning in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7, By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And from this verse, I want to consider this morning the nature of true saving faith. The nature of true saving faith. The question is, what are the characteristic features of true saving faith? And here's a verse which, if not rightly understood, can lead to heresy as regards the doctrine of salvation. In no way is this verse meant to teach that Noah was saved partly by faith and partly by works. And the fact is that which we also always need to remember is that for us in the New Testament, just as it was for the people in the Old Testament, salvation for the people in the Old Testament was entirely by the grace of God through faith. By definition, faith, or rather grace, speaks of that which is freely given. Grace denotes a gift. In the case of salvation, such gift, according to the word of God, is unearned, is undeserved, is unmerited. In fact, you'll recall back in Genesis chapter 6 how that immediately after describing the utter depravity, the utter wickedness of man in the earth, God's intention to blot out every living thing from the face of the earth. Verse 8 of Genesis 6 says this, but Noah found grace in the eyes of 
the Lord. So related to the saving grace of God is faith, and faith through which the saving grace of God is accessed was the means God ordained back in the Old Testament whereby the righteous would live according to Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. Hence, as Paul argues in Romans chapter 4, both Abraham and David were declared righteous by faith and not by works. So that when we read here in our text, by faith Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household, we are to hear from this text an emphasis not on what he did, but on what he believed. That's how we are to understand it. The emphasis is on faith. Keep in mind, once again, that's what the chapter is all about. It is about the importance of faith. Faith that enables one to come into a saving relationship with God. But I want to ask this question this morning. What is the nature of true saving faith? That faith by which Noah and his household were saved from divine judgment by way of the flood. That faith by which one is saved from the eternal wrath of God. This is what we want to consider this morning. And so the first observation we derive from our text is this. That true saving faith is accompanied by the fear of the Lord. True saving faith is accompanied by the fear of of the Lord. Notice of Noah, it is expressly stated here in our text that being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And what was that warning that Noah had received from God? It's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3 against the backdrop of the violence, the moral, the spiritual corruption that was rampant in the world of that day. Noah was warned by God here in Genesis chapter 6 verse 13 as follows. God told Noah by way of warning, he says this, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. God's warning to Noah concerned the decimation of all flesh on earth. In response to which, the word of God suggests here, Noah was profoundly moved with fear. Noah exhibited what scripture describes elsewhere as the fear of God or the fear of the Lord. He did not respond to God in what we might call a casual cavalier fashion. No, he regarded God's warning with deep concern. He regarded God's warning with some measure of apprehension, with real regard for what he had heard from the Lord. What is this fear of the Lord of which Scripture speaks? In general terms, the fear of the Lord in Scripture denotes that reverential awe, that sense of profound awe, of reverence, of respect that one has for God in view of who God is. Such is a kind of fear that combines affection for the Lord with concern at the thought of offending him. 
And of note is this, that one of the prominent features of the writer of the Hebrews, you notice in this epistle, there are at least two other places in the epistle where the writer calls attention to this matter of fearing God. In fact, he uses the same Greek word, the same root word as is used here of Noah's faith. In Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7, he uses the word in connection with the attitude of our Lord Jesus as he was here on earth praying to his Father. We read in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. He was heard because he feared. In Hebrews chapter 12 verse 28, the writer again uses this word as he exhorts his readers he says to them, to offer to God, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and godly fear. Now this word that speaks of Noah's fear in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7 as reverent fear may also carry the idea of apprehension. It's not just this uh, fear of reverence, but it also carries the idea of apprehension, of being concerned about a matter to the point of anxiety. The King James Version, a few other versions, simply says then that Noah was moved with fear. He was moved with fear. It appears that Noah's fear was a deep reverential awe for God, yes, but it was also a fear in terms of apprehension and dread at the news of God's judgment that was to come upon the earth. The news that God would destroy all flesh upon the earth. And we can say that because in scripture the fear of the Lord relates to that holy dread which one senses knowing that as the holy and righteous God, God of necessity must punish, must judge sin. As in First Peter chapter 1, verse 17, and Peter says there, if you call on the Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In fact, godly man as he was, notice the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 120, Here's what the psalmist says, My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. There are people today who say we should not be afraid of God. We, and in fact, some people take it to a point where they get all chummy with God, all friendly with God, all familiar with God. And my friends, the Word of God tells us, yes, God is loving, God is merciful, God is our Savior, God is our Father. But we need to understand, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, that our God is a consuming fire and is to be held in reverence among those who fear him. Let me say this, that there's an aspect of the gospel that many overlook particularly in our time, and that is the wrath and judgment of God. Listen, my friends, the gospel is as much about the condemning wrath of God as it is about the love and grace and mercy of God. And because there's a heaven to be sought and there's a heaven, a hell to be shunned, it means that those who are not saved need to fear for their souls. 
You're listening this message this morning, perhaps on the internet, by way of Zoom. You have not yet come to Christ as Savior. Let me say this, that you, my friends, have every reason to fear, to be in trepidation for your soul. Because here's what the Word of God teaches. The Word of God teaches not when we die, but right now, right now, the wrath of God hovers over those who have not believed on Christ Right now, that person who is outside of Christ, John 3 verse 18, is under the condemnation of God. And until you come to Christ, my friends, it's only the mercy and grace of God that is keeping you from falling right into hell. Now, it's not incidental that as Paul presents a portrait of fallen, unsaved humanity in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. He cites, among other scriptures, Psalm 36 and verse 1, which says this, There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we are seeing that lived out right in our time. In fact, very recently, we have a popular singer, popular female singer who has spurted out some of the most blasphemous uh, things concerning the word of God, concerning the Bible. We are living in an age where people, my friends, have no regard or respect or fear of the living God. The absence of the fear of God marks one who is unregenerate. It marks one who is unsaved. It marks one who is outside Christ. By contrast, the fear of God characterizes those who have come to know the Lord. Those who have come to know the Lord, my friends, they come and they enter into the state where they fear the Lord, they reverence the Lord, and here's the point, they are sustained by the fear of the Lord because the fear of the Lord is what helps them, is what enables them to lead a holy life. Such a person who fears God, according to Acts chapter 10, verse 35, is acceptable to him. We read in Psalm 85, verse 9, his salvation is near to those who fear him. Why? Because there's no way that persons can truly fear God until and unless they have come face to face with the reality of who God is and how sinful and wretched they are in the eyes and the presence of the holy and righteous God of heaven. The thing to note is that in one way or another, true saving faith will be accompanied by the fear of the Lord. In one way or another. As we said, fear of God stems from a recognition of who he is, that one cannot be saved, as I said, without coming face to face with the reality of God's holiness, his righteousness, his justice, and yes, his grace. Now, it is true that in coming to Christ, there are some people who come to Christ without this sense of dread, without this sense of apprehension. In other words, they come to Christ, we would say, in a quiet way. They are transformed by the grace of God in a quiet way, such as Lydia. Lydia was by the seaside, by the river rather, and Paul spoke the word of God. Luke tells us that God opened her heart to receive the things that were spoken by the Apostle Paul. No fireball dropping from heaven, nothing sensational. There was no fear, no dread, no trepidation. 
There are some people who come to Christ, my friends, like that. The goodness of God, the word of God says, leads to repentance. But then there are others like the Philippian jailer. The Philippian jailer who, sensing uh, the awesomeness of the holy presence of God, who comes face to face with the reality of God's presence, of God's power, of God's holiness. They tremble in fear and they cry out, what must I do to be saved? Acts chapter 16, 29 and 30. But here's a point that we want to make this morning. True saving faith will, in one way or another, be accompanied by the fear of God. The fear of God, not necessarily in the sense of some sense of dread and trepidation, but the fear of God in terms of a recognition of who God is as the holy and righteous God, and yes, as the God of mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. The point is when one understands the message of the gospel that the wages of sin is death and that outside of Christ there is no hope, then as an expression of genuine saving faith, one will fear the Lord. How? By looking to Christ and Christ alone as one's hope of salvation. That's what it means to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord means to see him and him only as the means, the source of salvation. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 31, we see, for example, that upon seeing how they had crossed the Red Sea and how that God had wiped out their enemies, the Egyptians who were pursuing them. Here's what the Bible says in Exodus 14, verse 31, concerning Israel. They feared the Lord and believed in him. According to Psalm 130 and verse 4, it is an understanding of God as a source of forgiveness that leads one to fear him. The psalmist says there, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So here's the point. Either way, whether one comes like the Philippian jailer or one comes quietly like Lydia, there will always be the fear of God attending true saving faith. It was true of Noah. The question is, is that true of you? Do you have the fear of God? That's a question we must answer from time to time. And I dare say one of the worst states we can reach, even as Christians, is to lose the sense of the awesomeness of God, who he is in terms of his holiness, in terms of his righteousness, in terms of his justice. In fact, A.W. Tozer many years ago said this, that one of the worst ills that has come upon the church is this loss of the sense of the majesty and holiness of God. And he says, on account of this loss, we are suffering a number of evils. Of course, I'm paraphrasing him. Now, whereas there are those who question the legitimacy, the legitimacy of the fear of God's judgment being the means of true, genuine salvation, Scripture suggests otherwise. There are some people who say, oh, listen, to come to Christ out of fear, no, 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 that's not salvation. Let me say this, the Bible thinks otherwise. Because as we see, notice in the case of the Philippian jailer, he came trembling, he came in fear, But here's the point, when Christ was presented to him, when Paul and Silas opened the gospel to him, having believed on Christ, look at what followed in the life of this Philippian jailer. 
He at once manifested the fruit of conversion. We read in Acts chapter 16, 33, 34. And he took them, that is Paul and Silas, the same hour of the night, and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once. He and his family, verse 34, that he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And then think of such verses as these. Matthew 10, 28, our Lord Jesus, who the loving Lord that he is, is full of grace and truth. Listen to the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 10, 28. He says this, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's our Lord Jesus. In Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, he spoke the parable. Well, some say it's a parable. I don't think it is. But he spoke this, this, he gave this account of the rich man and Lazarus in which the rich man landed up in hell. And he tells of how the rich man was there in hell crying in torment, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. That's our Lord Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And the question is, what's the point of these verses in Scripture? What's the point of these verses in the Word of God? And surely, they implicitly affirm that true saving faith is not at odds with coming to Christ out of a sense of dread and apprehension of his judgment, of his wrath. That God can and does use fear as a means of savingly drawing people to himself. My friends, the fact that God issues such faithful warnings in his word concerning a hell that is to be shunned, concerning the wrath of God, which is to come, suggests this, that God has a loving interest in the souls of men, and his intention is that men would heed warning and run to Christ, finding refuge in him. It was a mid-18th century preacher, well, late mid-17th to 18th century preacher and writer, Wilhelm Sabraco, who said this, quote, here's what he says, Since the soul's well or woe is dependent upon God, we must be fearful out of love for our own salvation and must fear God's wrath and judgments. An unconverted person must also, by the fear for the eternal wrath of God, be persuaded to believe. Second Corinthians 5 verse 11, remember what Paul says there, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And Noah, the Bible says, was warned by God, and Noah was moved with fear, the word of God tells us. He was moved with a sense of apprehension. He was moved with a sense of reverence, yes, but Noah understood that when God spoke, it was not to be trifled with. His word was not to be treated lightly. It was not to be trifled with. Why? Because he is a holy and just and righteous God of heaven. The hymn writer John Newton was evidently driven to Christ by this sense of fear. Because notice what he said in his hymn, Amazing Grace. Newton writes this. He says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. How precious 
did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And would, my friends, that in our time we would see people running to Christ for refuge. And so suggested by our text, first of all, is that true saving faith, in one way or another, will always be accompanied by the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, as expressed in, in Lydia, seeing Christ as the hope of salvation, she quietly responded to the Lord. The Lord opened her heart, or the Philippian jailer who came trembling, asking, what must I do to be saved? In the second place, suggested by our text, is that true saving faith, is evidenced by obedience to the word of God. True saving faith is evidenced by obedience to the word of God. Notice again our text, Hebrews 11 verse 7. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, here it comes, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Genesis chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, God had given Noah specific instructions not only to build the ark for the safety of himself and his family, but also instructions as to how he should construct the ark. We read in Genesis chapter 6, verse 22, these words which follow those instructions, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. What's that? Obedience. And this is the nature of the faith that says, beloved, this is the nature of that faith that brings us into true saving relationship with the Lord Jesus. True saving faith, here's the point I'm making, true saving faith has this inbuilt feature of obedience to the word of God. Now, many people see obedience as being antithetical to faith, as being antithetical to the gospel. But again, the word of God does not suggest that. That is why in Romans chapter 1 verse 5, scripture can speak of the obedience of faith. Paul is writing to the Romans and he says there in Romans chapter 1 verse 5 that God has given him the grace of apostleship. Why Paul? Here's what he says. To bring about obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name to all nations. He writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 8 and here's where the judgment of God comes. He writes there in 2 Thessalonians 1 8 how that Christ will return in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not, here it comes, obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The point is a profession of faith in Christ that does not issue in obedience, that does not issue in commitment to the known will of God as found in the word of God, is a dead faith. One is in possession of a dead faith. The Apostle James writes in James chapter 2 verse 14, these words, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And of course, the implicit answer is no, that faith cannot save him. Our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, 21 and 22 taught this, that a faith that does not issue 
in doing the will of God, the will of his Father in heaven, will shockingly disappoint some on the day of judgment. Here's what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. You'll notice that in his great commission, as he told his disciples to go into the world, make disciples, make followers of all nations. Among the instructions he gave, he says this, teaching them to observe what? All things that I have commanded you, obedience. Obedience. Some people say, well, listen, as long as I come to Christ by faith, faith alone, and that's it. It matters not how I live. The word of God says not so. You see, we are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. True saving faith then, such as Noah exhibited, is marked by obedience to God, by obedience to the Lord Jesus, who himself declared in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they, what, follow me. Listen to, in fact, listen to what the writer of the Hebrews says, right in this very book of Hebrews. He says in Hebrews chapter 5, Verse 9, he says that Christ became the author of salvation to everyone who what? Obeys him. Is your life, my friend, marked by obedience to the known will of God? We're not talking about sinless perfection. But here's the point. Is your life, yes, there are sins here and there. No one is perfect. But here's the point. Is the general tenor and bent of your life one of obedience to God, or is it one of constant rebellion and sin against God? That is not saving faith, according to the word of God. Bible teacher and, and, and preacher, Pastor John MacArthur says this, quote, he says, a profession of faith that is devoid of righteous works cannot save a person. No matter how strongly it may be, may be proclaimed, it is not that some amount of good works added to true faith can save a person, but rather that faith that is genuine and saving will inevitably produce good works, end quote. Titus chapter 1 verse 16 speaks of those who profess to know God, but deny him by their works. They're not obedient to God. They're not mindful of the will of of God, conversely, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 asserts that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared and it trains us. It trains us to do what, says Paul, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And that was true of Noah. Again, this obedience does not cause our salvation. We are never saved by obeying God. We are never saved by how obedient we are to God's commandments, to God's word. Obedience, you see, is the fruit of true saving faith. 
The point is, how else could Abe no, could Noah have demonstrated he truly believed in God, that he truly believed in coming judgment other than by constructing an ark as God had instructed him for the salvation of himself and his household? Had he not done that, then his faith would have been in vain. You are not saved, my friends. Listen, you do not have faith in Christ until you run to Christ for refuge and rest in him and confide in him. Again, how would his believing the warning of divine judgment be of any benefit to him if he had not obeyed God by building the ark as he was told? Suggested by this text, then, number one, is that true saving faith is accompanied by the fear of the Lord. Number two, that true saving faith is evidenced by obedience to the word of God. And then the third and final thing this morning is a true saving faith, very, very important. True saving faith affords us a standing of righteousness before God. Because notice concerning Noah, we are told in the very last line of verse 7, that he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Notice very carefully, Noah did not work toward becoming righteousness. He inherited it. He became, he became, the word of God says, an heir. And that he became an heir suggests that that righteousness with which he was blessed, derived from faith, would suggest that it was not of his doing. Such righteousness is none other than the righteousness that God places to our account, that he imputes to us. That righteousness that comes to us as a free gift, Romans chapter 5, verse 17, is, assessed, is accessed through faith in Christ, Romans chapter 3 and verse 22. Again, how true to the message of the gospel Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And the message of the gospel this morning is this, that we don't work our way up to God trying to become righteous. But that when we place faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the one who died for our sins, according to Romans chapter 5 verse 1, we are declared righteous through faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, Noah believed God. He had faith. And as such, he became an heir of the righteousness which comes by faith. And so the message to those who are not saved this morning, there's a wrath to come from which you need to flee. And the only refuge there is from that wrath is the refuge that is to be found in Christ. The question is, have you fled to him for refuge? Is he your only hope? Are you looking to him, trusting in him, resting in him as your only hope? Of salvation. If not, 
why not? Maybe in the past you have trembled and, and, and really feared at the message of hell. Here's the point. That's not conversion until you have come to rest in Christ, until you have come to put your faith and trust in Christ. May God grant that this would be so in your life if you are not saved, for his name's sake. And for those of us who are saved, that we would rejoice and rest and repose in the rest that is to be found in Christ.